Well, Happy New Year, and thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, uh, if you're new here this morning, I'd want to especially welcome you. You are our guest, and uh, we want to make sure that uh, you feel welcome here. My name is Brian. I'm the discipleship pastor here at our church. Randy, our senior minister, uh, he'll be back next week. Um, so this morning, we're going to study a little passage out of the book of Galatians. But before we do that, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can come together, celebrate this new year together, and come and, and hear from you. Lord, we do pray that uh, you would speak through me, um, give me the words to say, help me to speak only your truth. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that uh, is untrue that I've prepared, that I would forget that, and that uh, you would be glorified. Lord, help us all to know you better this morning uh, because of what we're studying and to glorify you with our lives more. Thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I mentioned, we're going to be studying a little bit out of the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 4. So Galatians, it's a great, powerful book, a lot of great truths in this book. The gospel and freedom is the theme of the whole book of Galatians. We're going to be studying a bit of chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 7. If you want to follow along in those Bibles that are in the pockets in front of you, it's on page 1156. Now, before I read the, read the passage, I want to give a little context. It's always a good idea uh, when you're studying just a small section of Scripture uh, to make sure that you uh, study it in context. That way you, you get the right interpretation of, uh, of the passage and, and not misinterpret it. So I want to summarize chapter 3 of Galatians before we look at the beginning of chapter 4 here. In chapter 3, Paul was working, and, and Paul uh, is the author of this letter, Paul was working hard to convince the believers in Galatia, and that's the city to which he, he sent this letter, Paul is working hard to convince these believers that their faith was not just a good starting place and then you add something to that in order to receive a right standing with God, in order to receive salvation, in order to be saved. See, in the, in the case of some of the religious leaders of that day, they believed that it was religious acts plus obeying the law plus faith in order to receive that right standing before God. You know, in our day, um, you know, sometimes we're tempted to think that it's uh, being a good person plus faith to receive a right standing before God. Or there's some churches that teach that it's being baptized by water plus faith to be saved. Or we might think that it's having a quiet time, spending time in God's word each day, plus faith to be saved. Paul argues that no, there's no merit that I can gain, there's no work that I can do to earn salvation, absolutely no exceptions. So in our text this morning in chapter four, Paul continues on in his explanation of, of the gospel, the good news of Christ, that he started out in, in chapter 3. And he describes some of what we have when we place our faith in Christ. The bottom line of, of this paragraph is that Jesus has set you free and made you a son. If you don't remember anything else 
that we talk about this morning, remember that Jesus has set you free and made you a son or a daughter. So let's look at uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Now in uh, the very end of Galatians 3, uh, Paul ends up talking about an heir, uh, someone who has an inheritance, and so that's how he starts out in, in chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Well, it seems like Paul really wants to make a point here because back in chapter three, he uses an analogy of a, of a prisoner to drive home the point that there is a previous life that we had as prisoners and now there's a new life of freedom that we have. And so then here in, in chapter four, he keeps the same contrast of a previous life versus a new freedom, a life of freedom. But he uses a different analogy. Here, his analogy, he describes a child growing up in a household. But it's not just any household. This is a household of wealth and standing. So there were certain rules back in those early cultures that governed how a young master would grow up and eventually become the master of a household. Until the age of 14, a boy in a wealthy home was under the supervision of a tutor. And then until the age of 25, he was under the supervision of yet another type of guardian. And now this is a family situation, so it's pleasant and not at all bad, but Paul is saying that it's an inferior situation as compared to full adulthood. He is under guardians and managers, it says in verse two. Well, you know, when we were kids, we were under the rules and regulations of our parent or parents. We were under restraint. There's not full liberty to do as we please. Many of you know that Cindy and I have three girls. Um, two of them are now adults. Um, Brigitte, um, though, is still in junior high school. And, well, she's still learning that she is under the rules and regulations of her mother and me. And, and that she will be uh, for some time to come. As much as she doesn't want to be, she may not want to be, she's restricted in what she can do. And you know what it's like, you, you that have kids. Your kids are, are under your rules and regulations. So verse three then starts the other half of the analogy. This is the part where we're told how we are like that child under restraint. So back in the earlier days of the nation of Israel, God gave his people the law that they might understand what sin is and be driven back to God. It was a time of spiritual minority when God's people were those young masters under the guardianships of the laws that God gave to Moses, you know, the Ten Commandments, the regulations in the Old Testament. But Satan took the good things, the law given to Moses, and he twisted it for his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. 
God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive people to the coming Messiah. Satan used it and still uses it to reveal sin and drive people to despair. This is what Paul is speaking against. There were folks who were telling Christians that they still had to be under the guardianship of the law and therefore enslaved to it. There are people today who do the same thing. They add something to the gospel to imply that our obedience to Christ in everything is not out of a love for him, but out of a need to earn a standing before him. You've, you've had this feeling and this experience. I know I have. The feeling when you, you really mess up. You fall into that sin that has plagued you all your life. And you feel like now you're going to have to work back to a right standing before God. You despair. You feel like you have to do something to earn God's favor back. Paul says no. We live by faith in Christ. We can't earn anything from God. This Christian life is relationship-centered, not law-centered. We strive to obey God in everything, yes, but it's because we value Christ as our greatest treasure, not because we can earn his favor or love. And when we do fall back into that sin, we turn to God and we come to him knowing that that relationship is secure. And we ask for forgiveness so that the fellowship can be restored. But the time had fully come, the fullness of time had come, verse 4, for the people to be freed from their guardianship and live a new life of freedom. Notice the word but there at the beginning of that verse. Uh, This is an indication that something contrary is coming. Reality isn't now what was illustrated in that life of the young master. There's a different reality. The time had perfectly come that God chose to complete his plan. But when the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Christ is human and was born in the same way that we all were born. Yet, unlike us, he existed before he was born. You see, God the Father sent him not created him or made him. God sent him, implying that he existed before he was born. Jesus is not just human. He is also fully God. And he was born under the law. What what does that mean, born under the law? Well, Jesus was not just the son of any mother. He was the son of a Jewish mother. He was born into the Jewish nation, subject to the Jewish law. Throughout life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. He was perfectly righteous in all of his actions, all of his thoughts, and even all of his motives. The divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ all come together to make him the perfect redeemer for men and women. If you want to learn more about the nature of Christ, who he is and what he did, 
I encourage you to take Theron Jones's class this semester. He's, he's going to be teaching a class called The Person and Work of Jesus Christ. It starts January 22nd and uh, meets right over in room 153 during this worship service hour. It's going to be a great class, and Theron, thanks for teaching. So God sent his son. For what purpose? to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, verse five. Here are two powerful effects that Christ's coming accomplished, to redeem and to adopt. Christ didn't just rescue us from slavery, he came to make slaves into sons. So throughout history, when someone has come under the control of someone else, when they've lost their freedom to implement their own will and make their own decisions, and when their own resources are inadequate to deal with the power of the person that's controlling them, they can regain their freedom only by the intervention of a third party. And the most common and most known example of this throughout history is where a person is redeemed from a life of slavery. We have in our own country's history, and in other countries' histories, and in ancient history, and unfortunately even in our modern day, many examples of slavery, and examples of a third party paying a price, redeeming, setting a person free from slavery. You know, some of our giving each week that we give during our offering time goes to one of our missions over in Nepal and Thailand and many of you have, have met Sundar and Sarita. They were here a couple years ago. Uh, one of their ministries is to set young girls free from a life of slavery, of human trafficking. We're, we're being a part of that redemption process over there on the other side of the world. Yet, how does that, how does that affect us? Um, you know, the, the slavery thing. We're, none of us here in this room are slaves to anyone. Well, the Bible says that, yes, we are slaves. We humans are in bondage to sin. We're all guilty of sin, and we're all under the ruling power of sin in our lives. I know I can, I can feel that power pulling at me. I know you can, too. Romans chapter 3 describes a bit of how sinful we are. It says that the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their tongues practice deceit. We do and say things that are hurtful to others. We tell half-truths. It's the things that we do, the words that we say, and the thoughts that we think that are really the expressions of our sin. But they're just the expressions of our sin. They're not even the core of our sin. They're just the tip of the iceberg. Here's the core of our sin. Romans 3.11 says that there is no one who seeks God. You say, well, you know, I'm here at church this morning. I, I, I'm seeking God. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm involved in a small group. I seek God. I volunteer at church. I'm seeking God. When we're in bondage to sin, we don't seek God to dwell in his wonderful presence. We don't value Christ as our greatest treasure. We only seek God to get a nice, happy, comfortable life where we can get what we want so that we can go on continuing to life, live life without God. 
This is the state that we were in when God sent his son to redeem us, to set us free from our sin, to give us eternal life, and to give us salvation. Now, the practical result of our redemption is is not that we're sinless. Rather, what we have now is the ability to set our mind on what God desires. We have the ability to live our lives according to God's given purpose. We still experience the effects and the consequences of sin, but we're set free from that bondage to sin. We can now set our minds on what God desires because we have been liberated and adopted as God's children with full rights as sons, it says. We're not the young master who is under the guardianship of a tutor. God's payment for us has provided for us to be out of that situation and to live fully with all the rights as adult children of God. You know, think about what, a, what an adult adopted child has in our society. The adult adopted child has, um, has gone beyond the guardianship of his or her parents. And the relationship has come around to full maturity. The adult adopted child has the family's name. He or she has the family's identity has the family's honor. This is what we have as adopted children of God. We have God's family name. We have the family identity. We have God's family honor. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, verse six. We're redeemed from the law's supervision and condemnation. We receive a new relationship with God with full sonship rights and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within our hearts. This all happens as we turn away from our sin, turn to God and place our trust in Christ. Then Paul says something of the Spirit here. The Spirit of, God, the Spirit of Christ that God sent is the Spirit who calls out Abba Father, he says. By the way, a little side note here. Did you notice that in in verse four, we saw that God the Father sent God the Son. And now here in verse six, we see that God the Father sent the Spirit. It's an obvious reference to the Trinity here. But look at the description of the Spirit. He's calling out to the Father using Abba, the intimate, familiar way that Jesus used of God in his prayers. As J.B. Phillips puts it, it's like saying, Father, dear Father. So God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. Romans 8 says that when we cry out, Abba, Father, it is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit is poured out into our hearts to confirm and make real our adoption. So, verse seven starts with so. Keep, keep an eye out for that word whenever you come across it and you know, when you're reading your Bible each day. So um, means that there's something important coming after. Pay attention to what follows it. Here, Paul concludes this stage of his argument. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is a great summary sentence. We're not slaves, we're sons. We're sons of God. 
And then he brings up the idea of, of an heir, you know, back that he brought up in chapter 3. We're not just an adopted child of God, we're an heir. Consider Romans 8, 17 and 18. It says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There is a glory that God will one day share with us that will be revealed in us. We are co-heirs with Christ. This is spectacular. It says that all of the children of God are his heirs. And we will receive the inheritance of God. And there's no greater inheritance in all the universe. God himself is is our inheritance. Not the things that he has made. Christ's and our inheritance is the glory of God. Which means the vision of the participation in and the enjoyment of God himself. In fact, if we said that our great inheritance was something other than God himself, you know, mainly the things that God has made, we would be idolaters. We would be living our lives to worship God's gifts rather than God himself. Think about what it says in Romans 5. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the the great joy of our hope is that one day we will see and savor the glory of God himself. And unless you think that God's glory is something different than God himself, consider verse 11 of that same chapter of Romans 5. It says, and not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In God, not in the gifts of God, and not in this verse even of the glory of God, but in God. It is a sure inheritance, one that God has promised to bring about. Oh, how we need to cultivate a great taste for our Heavenly Father and His, and his fellowship. You know, if God is not precious to you, what a stranger you are to your inheritance. If you love his gifts, think on how wonderful the giver must be. And think of what an insult it is to take a gift from a giver's hand and to delight in it more than you delight in the giver. God himself is our portion. We were made for him. And all the good things that he has made for us are meant to reveal more of him and to send our hearts singing to God. Well, some of you this morning might be, might be new here at church and, and you're thinking, well, these are all great concepts, um, but, but maybe, maybe these just apply to the regulars here at Windsor Road, you know, the, the church people. Um, you know, if you're, if you're thinking that, consider this. Jesus Christ really was sent by God 2,000 years ago. and He provided for us that adoption, that redemption, that opportunity to be an heir of God. He provided for us freedom from the bondage of sin that we all have. But that's not just automatic. God says that we need to put that into effect. The Bible says that we do that by faith. We trust that Christ is who he said he was and that he provided that redemption and adoption. And faith is, faith is more than just believing the facts. Faith is um, really stepping out and believing 
to the extent that Christ becomes your greatest treasure. I've said that several times, and it comes from my favorite parable in Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man finds the treasure, he buries it, he goes in his joy, and he sells all that he has so that he can come back and buy that field and get that treasure. This is what Christ's kingdom reign in our hearts is to be like. Now, obviously, we don't actually go out and sell all our possessions in order to get a relationship with God, in order to have a relationship with Christ. But that's the kind of valuing, that's the kind of treasuring, that's the kind of cherishing that we are to have. It's the kind of value that a heart of, of faith places on Christ. So if you haven't, I encourage you to place your trust in Christ this morning. Ask him to apply that redemption and adoption that he provided to your life. Many of us, though, have trusted Christ. We do value Christ as our greatest treasure, and we're working, working toward that. For us, we have a great reason to praise and thank God. We've been focusing on what God has accomplished in our lives through sending his son, redemption and adoption, becoming heirs of God. But the Christian life really isn't about us, is it? The Christian life is about God. Ephesians 1 says that God adopted us as his sons in accordance with his pleasure and will. It was for his own glory that he sent his son because it brought him great pleasure And our proper response is what the psalmist says in Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. It is a mark of all the true children of God that they long to magnify the God of their salvation. Psalm 40.16 says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord be exalted. This was the heart cry of those believers in the Old Testament. And now it is the longing of every true Christian. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, says 1 Corinthians 10. That is, do everything so that God might be magnified. The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Think and act in a way that will make God look as great as he already is. We are to live to be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. Jesus set you free and made you a son or a daughter for his glory. I'd like to close the message this morning with a little story. It's a little parable, really, an analogy that will hopefully capture just a a bit of the reality of what God has done. This is adapted from John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. Once there was a land ruled by a wicked, wicked and evil prince. He had come from a foreign country and enslaved all the people of the land. He made them miserable with hard labor in his coal mines, which were across a deep canyon. He had built a massive trestle for the trains that carried his slaves across the canyon to the mines each morning, and it was heavily guarded. Two men were still free in this kingdom, one old and the other young. They lived on an inaccessible cliff overlooking the trestle. 
they hated the trestle. At last they resolved together to blow it up and destroy the slave labor of the enemy prince. They planned and they prayed and they reminded themselves of the reality of heaven. The night came when the deed would be done. Their hearts were pounding with joy. It was a hard plan. It would be possible to time the trek of the trestle guard so the explosive could be carried quickly to the vulnerable spot in the trestle, but there would be no time for the carrier of the explosive to return. It was certain that he would be seen and the plan foiled if he tried to return. To make sure the trestle blew up, the two men agreed that the young man would detonate it by hand on the trestle. He would blow up with it. But they believed in heaven and they loved the people of the land. And so the honor of this sacrifice made their hearts leap with joy. The hour came. They folded up the map of their strategy and stood from the table and they embraced each other. When the young man got to the door, he turned, he looked at the old man and said, I love you, Father. And the old man took a deep breath with joy and said, I love you too, son. Let's pray together.